0: to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, Craig, we've made it to 150. It's hard to believe. Happy 150th, my friend. Uh, and to you too, friend. <laughs> <laughs> so just as we started out this podcast with the people under the stairs, uh, with one of our favorite horror directors, Wes Craven, we thought we would come back to our roots, as it were, uh, by doing Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors. Yeah, one of his more iconic uh, movies. We've done the first Nightmare on Elm Street. We've done Nightmare on Elm Street two. So why not do number three? As soon as you uh, suggested this, I think you suggested this one. I did. All that's been going through my head all week long has been. Where the dream? I got a dream no more. And you know
1: I love it when you sing.
0: <laughs> I know you do. I had to get that in. Oh man, I, I oh gosh, this movie, right? This this that song. I, I got to talk about the song real quick. Do it. You know, this movie was big when I was okay. We're talking 1987, so I would have been what third grade or fourth grade or yeah. something like that. But man, this song was all over the place. It was on the radio. Everybody was Freddy Krueger, this and that and the other. I was obsessed with Freddy Krueger at this time. I don't think I'd even seen the first... To Nightmare on Elm Streets. So I was a little too young for my parents to allow me to do so. Your parents might have allowed you to do so.
1: Well, I remember, this was one of those movies that my dad had on VHS, well, not this one, excuse me, the original, was one of the ones that my dad had on VHS. And mm. uh, I wasn't allowed to watch it. Like, my mom was adamant that I was not allowed to watch this. the
0: first one. So, naturally you watched it.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, so I watched it when they were, I don't know, asleep or gone or something. But yeah, this one, uh, I always cite this one as being one of my favorites of the sequels, and it is. You know, we like I like you said, we've already done parts one and two. We also did um, New Nightmare, did. which I also love and also cite as one of my favorite sequels. Mm. Um, but this one, you know, it was fairly early uh, in the whole Freddy days. Uh, And this was the one where it really kind of started to pick up mainstream. I mean, the first two did well for horror movies, um, but it was really by part three where Freddie... Kruger really entered the lexicon of pop culture, and yes. he, you're right—he was everywhere. Um, he was making appearances on MTV. Uh, I, it was either during this one or maybe part four when he had like his own like nine seven six number for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> Call Freddy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Polish friends, Freddy Krueger is on your phone. Dial this number now. I've got some tales to tell. Freddy's favorite bedtime stories. <laughs> Dead Time Stories, all brand new. straight from my boiler room to your home. It's Freddy Krueger on your phone. So dial this number now, if you dare. Tell them Freddy sent you. $2 $2 the first minute, 45 cents each additional minute. Children, get your parents' permission before you dial. I,
0: I want to know what Freddie said on the 976 number. I mean, what, what did he do on that? Did he just call up and he just, like, berate you for a while? Yeah, I guess so. I can only imagine. Maybe he told ghost stories. I don't
1: know. And this this replays. You know, they, they play uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Marathons on American Cable fairly regularly. And so I, I catch this one. Uh, Every once in a while, but I always, you know, catch it kind of in the middle or I'll see like 20 minutes of it or something. And this is the first time that I've sat down and watched it from start to finish in a long time. Mm. And while it certainly shows its age, I still really appreciate it because this is kind of the one this one in part four. Part 4 did the best of all of them as far as as making money is concerned. This one, I think, is like second or maybe third in terms of money-making. But this one and Part 4 are kind of the ones that bridge from Freddy being super dark and scary... To really jokey and, yeah. and comedic and and funny. And I, I like my Freddy however he comes. I like <laughs> the I like the dark ones. They're fun. He is certainly scary. You know, the mere idea Um, of him, you know, this nightmare demon or whatever he is that can get you in your sleep and nobody believes you and there's really not a whole lot you can do to protect yourself because everybody has to sleep. That's, that's scary in and of itself. Um, and then later on when it started getting a little bit more comedic and he was popping off one liners left and right. You know, I still enjoyed it. You know, Robert England seems to take so, or seemed rather, to take so much joy in playing this character and really making it his own. That I, I've really uh, enjoyed every one of his incarnations of it. I mean, we can just go ahead and completely ignore renoi- or ignore that terrible, terrible remake. Um, <laughs> Robert England, you know, Robert England is Freddy Krueger, and uh, he's this movie. I think just has. One of the coolest premises of all of them, and uh, some good performances and some great kills, great ones, some great Freddy one-liners. We've got The Return of Heather Langenkamp, who I love from the first movie, I'm never going to say Heather Langenkamp is an amazing actress, but I love her. (laughs) Yeah, no, she's really not. Um, But I love her in these movies. And then you've got just some really cool stuff. Like, this was Patricia Arquette's first movie. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, she went on to be an incredibly successful actress and, uh, you know, a renowned actress in both film and television.
0: Um, You've got... Lawrence Fishburne. So funny to see Lawrence, <laughs> a very young Lawrence Fishburne, doing a, a Samuel Jackson. <laughs> yeah. in a way, It's like, wow, like uh, Samuel Jackson really hadn't been around yet, but it seems like he's doing a great Samuel Jackson impression in this movie. He, well, yeah, and, you know, he's
1: billed as Larry Fishburne, which is hilarious. and <laughs> um, He's got a relatively small part, but at the same time, he's good at it, you know, like <laughs> yeah. he's a likable character, even though he's a very small character. Character. Uh, just a, a lot of really. Uh, another, okay, so another one of my favorite movies from the 80s, um, and I can only assume that, or hope, I guess, that it's one of yours too, was Stand By Me.
0: Mm, Are you a fan? Yeah, I'm a fan.
1: The guy who played um, River Phoenix's older brother uh, in the movie, his name was Eyeball. Um, he's in this movie, so it was a big, recognizable face for me there. Just a, a lot of cool stuff um, going on. And Like I said, it does show its age. But uh, from a nostalgic perspective, I still am a big fan of this
0: movie. Yeah, I I have to say, this had also been the first time in a while that I had seen it, too. So I was so excited to get back. And just like you said, I also cite this as one of my favorites. I'm going to have to say that this time around watching it... You're right. It shows its age, and that bothered me so much. (laughs) It really did. I mean, I still enjoyed it, and I like it for what it is, but I don't think I can any longer say... I, I've got you know I used to kind of pit this one a new nightmare a little bit against each other. I used mm-hmm. to say, okay, the first one is the best. It's just so good in every way. And then this one a new nightmare., oh, I can't say which I like better. I, I think at least after now, I can definitely say I like New Nightmare a lot better than this movie if I have to rank them in order, you know and yeah. uh, and, and and that's because it's a little overwrought at times. <laughs> it gets a little dramatic. Uh, in moments. And also I was a little surprised seeing at this time how slow it is. I mean it really takes its time um introducing the characters and showing us all these people. And I, and I I can't I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I remembered there being a lot more Freddy in this movie than it turns out there really is.
1: You know that's so funny because that's one of the things that I... I was actually impressed by how fast paced it was.
0: Really? Um, I mean,
1: yeah. I mean, things are happening
0: all the time. Well, that's true, and I—I I don't mean to say that the plot isn't moving forward. It's definitely moving forward, but the stuff that we kind of expect to see in a Freddy movie—you know, these kills and these whatever like that—I I felt like that was really spaced out, and we spent a lot more time outside of the dream world than we did yeah. inside the dream world, and—and and the scares I thought were. We're pretty far between and, and pretty much um, all piled toward the end of the movie, I yeah. thought, the last third of the film. and And that's not how I remembered it being, you know?
1: Yeah, I I agree with you that it does get pretty, you know, dream heavy at the end. And I actually found that to be a little bit disappointing because some of the scenes that I remembered happened so quickly yeah. in the end. Uh and I didn't remember them going by so quickly and I wish yeah. that we would have spent a little bit more time with them. I mean I still enjoyed them and I thought they were really creative, um, but they just it, it seemed like they realized, oh, You've got 30 minutes left. Hurry
0: up. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, and I was watching this with my dad and my uncle, and and we're, we're over here. Actually, we're back in the States now uh, for this week for th- um, kind of to celebrate Thanksgiving. And so I- I'm here with them, and I said, hey, you guys want to sit down and watch this movie? Neither of them are horror fans. We've had my dad on here once before, and it was a blast. And I thought, well, maybe he'd like to join us for the podcast. And honestly, after watching it with them, they were both kind of disinterested in doing the podcast. It kind of proved to me, and I think looking at it a little bit through their eyes, that I think unless you are already a bit of a Nightmare on Elm Street fan, unless you're already kind of invested in this character, this isn't really the movie for you. At least it's maybe not the movie to start with.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I agree with that entirely. You have to be a fan. You have to be invested. This movie, I think, you know, I, I love reading... You know, behind-the-scenes stuff. And because, you know, this came out in 1987. It was, what, 30 years ago. And, and it's been popular. It's, it's one of, regardless of how we judge its quality now, it, it remains one of the most beloved sequels in the franchise. Mm-hmm. And people typically cite it. And so, of course, um, people are going to talk about it. And um, it was just interesting to read some of the backstory. You know, Robert England, or excuse me, not Robert Englund, uh, Wes Craven was not interested in making Nightmare on Elm Street a franchise at all. Uh, In fact, he did not want the open open ending that uh, Robert Shea wanted for the first film. He didn't want it to be open for a sequel, but Robert Shea insisted. And then when they went forward with making Nightmare on Elm Street 2, uh, Craven didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he didn't have anything to do with it. But the success of the sequel convinced him that uh, it could be a franchise, and so they were able to get him back on board for this one. And he wrote a treatment of the script that basically kind of followed the same plot line that this one does, except it was on a much grander scale, um, and there were some significant differences. This one is centered around these Elm Street kids— Uh, it's later revealed that they are the last of the Elm Street children, the last of the children whose parents killed Fred Krueger. And they're all having terrible dreams, and so they end up getting put in a mental institution, basically, and they're all there and they turn out, it turns out that they all have like dream powers. Uh, and so they kind of band together to fight Freddy. Wes Craven's initial script for this had that same basic premise, but there were some differences. Instead of coming back as an outsider and a professional, Nancy uh from the first movie was a patient in the the hospital with the other kids and it was just much more grandiose like one of the dream warriors was able to like turn into some big like transformer style uh, robot at the end, and one of the characters who made it into the final script, Kincaid, could fly, and another character who made it into the script, Taren, uh, could turn invisible. And the studio liked the general premise, but they knew that it was way outside of their budgetary restraints, and so they brought in a different uh, screenwriter, and they changed some things up, and it became what it was. Robert England also had written a treatment <laughs> for the third installment and his installment was titled freddie's funhouse and it was supposed to center around the sister of Tina, who was a character in the first movie, who was one of the first people killed, and she was supposed to start having all of these dreams, these macabre dreams about her sister's death, and of course, you know that led her to investigate, and she ended up back in Springfield and uh, or Springwood, whatever the name of the town is, and. It all centered around the house from the original, Nancy's house from the original. And Freddie had kind of turned it into a Home Alone-style, booby-trap, carnival-type house. Um, and he would lure people there and trap them, and there would be all kinds of memorabilia from the previous two films. Mm-hmm. And, and the studio liked some of his ideas uh, a lot, but uh, they, they eventually decided to go with what we ended up with. Um, And, you know, all of those different treatments sound like they have promise there was also an initial concept was to have Freddy come out into the real world and start haunting the actors from the first two movies which was rejected by the studio but ultimately revisited when Wes Craven did New Nightmare so there were all kinds of ideas floating around uh, and this is what they settled on and I'm not disappointed I, I like it, I like this concept the Dream Warrior concept I think is really clever, and I, I frankly I wouldn't mind seeing it revisited at some point if we get any future Nightmare films.
0: Yeah, and, and actually I was a little surprised again how my memory fails me a little bit in that this is obviously you know the concept and the way that they're going with it is it's almost this Avengers style you know they all assemble and they're mm-hmm. supposed to each have their own powers to battle Freddy at the end. Yet in the execution of it, they're quite weak <laughs> yeah yeah you know, and and it's not quite what it sounds like we're describing you know you would think there would be this major battle scene at the end where each person is using their special dream powers to get the one up on freddy but as it sort of turns out their dream powers kind of pop up and then they get off i mean yeah. it, it, it it's it's, true. it's pretty quick like so and so is gonna be a badass at her dream and and then she die i mean we're gonna talk about all this but but then she dies like within five minutes and the same thing right. with at least a couple of the other characters and then when it comes to the finale it, it isn't really a case of where their collective um powers bo- bound up. Uh, worked together to to fight him off you know it's really just again right. just a sort of other circumstances that that make it happen and so in that way it's a little disappointing I think. I mean, it, it, it feels like there was even more promise there for something extremely clever and extremely interesting, and that's the way it's going. But instead, and wh- I don't know, you could maybe even say this is the strength of the movie, that it subverts your expectations here and sort of neuters these characters pretty quickly, which has the effect of showing Freddie as a pretty unbeatable guy. Yeah. So, you know, it does that. But, you know, once again, it, it doesn't really give most of the characters much to do uh, for most of the movie. So that that's, you know, it's like a lot of setup, and then the payoff is not at all really what you expected.
1: That is totally fair. I guess my response to that would be, like you said, it, you know, it kind of subverts your expectations, but in the end, it really just kind of establishes that they go in there with this confidence and ultimately...
0: Yeah, You can't beat Freddy. (laughs) As
1: as tough as you may be, you're on his turf. But I I agree 100% with what you're saying. The thing that kind of eases that for me is that these characters, at least the vast majority of them, are very, very likable. And so I enjoyed watching them together. And I enjoyed watching them kind of inspire confidence in one another mm. and I was rooting for them. That's true. Uh, That's true. Yeah, it was it was disappointing, especially as we've already mentioned in the last half hour when some of them finally get their opportunity to to face off against Freddy and it lasts about 30 seconds and then, you know, they're just very Gone. easily dispatched. <laughs> it, it, it's disappointing, but But at the same time, you know, I was sad to see them go. Like, I had an emotional investment in them, and I was... I can still appreciate it, even though I think your criticism is totally fair.
0: They're the underdogs. You know, it's that underdog story, and they're all kind of losers in a way. And I mean, not all of their making, but they all have these issues, and they're bonding. You know, the thing that kind of joins them together is this issue that they all have with Freddie, and it's the one thing that they can, can work together. You know, it's the one thing they can all sort of focus on and uh, and try to fix and their lives. And so, yeah, you are rooting for these people who all have these different issues. It's a great premise. It really is. Yeah. Uh, it starts out with uh, Kristen Parker, who uh, is played by Patricia Arquette. And it has this, a, a kind of a sequence of dream within a dream kind of aspects to it, but basically, uh, what it starts out with is she's kind of dreams herself into that uh, Elm Street house, the mm-hmm. the one that's in kind of decay and decrepit and whatnot. She's putting together a model of it that goes into her room and she's doing this to stay awake so we, we know she's already being terrified by these dreams and then uh, her mother comes in and uh, scolds her quite a bit she's the typical Elm Street horrible horrible parent yeah <laughs>
1: Wes, all of the Elm Street parents are awful they are hello <laughs> don't hide mommy what are you still doing up it's past one just thought I wait for you
0: well I'm home now you can get to sleep come on
1: undelay. I'm not tired. Kristen, don't start with me. You know what your shrink said? He's full of it. I'm not going to let you get into an argument, not tonight. Now get to sleep.
0: And all of Wes Craven's parents really are awful in most of his yeah. movies. Uh, and so then anyway, she goes to sleep and she dreams herself in this house where she goes through and there's a little girl and there's the, you know, all of the stuff that we're familiar with, the, with the nursery rhymes and everything. Um, mm-hmm. And Freddie starts to chase her uh, and then she wakes up and uh, after she wakes up, she goes into the bathroom and uh, we get really cool effects, and that's the thing you know that I also love about the you and I you and I both love about these movies too is as corny as they can sometimes be, and as unrealistic as they can sometimes be, it's still really fun to see practical effects again.
1: Yeah, pre CGI,
0: all practical, and and the work that goes into it is just quite impressive. And what they are able to pull off all practical is also pretty impressive. And so yeah, you know, like her her sink comes to life and starts attacking her. Turns into Freddy almost he slashes at her at the same moment the mother hears screaming and comes in and interrupts her in the bathroom and when she bursts open the door she's staying there with a razor blade in her hand uh, and her yeah. arm cut now we saw freddie cutting her arm in the dream world but then in this world you know she's got a razor blade in her hand and so her mother thinks she's suicidal and then sends her to this uh, mental hospital and that's where she meets all the other characters that we're going to be spending the rest of the movie with
1: the mental hospital is weston hills or nightmare on elm street is pretty good about continuity. There are some things, you know, like Freddy's abilities and stuff are a little questionable from movie to movie, but otherwise, their continuity is pretty good. Weston Hills plays a really significant part throughout the series. Uh, We find out in this movie that this is the mental institution in which Freddy's mother was raped by a hundred maniacs, and that was his you know inception and then of course we have this whole movie taking place here it comes up again several times throughout the series and uh it's a primary set piece for Freddy versus jason um mm. you find out in freddie versus jason that kids are still being kept in weston hills you know uh dealing with their dream stuff so mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of cool you know some of these little easter egg things we hear on rate on the radio, Lawrence Fishburne, who is a an orderly, we hear on his radio that there have been a series of teen suicides in town. And then we meet all of these characters, just boom, 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 right in a row. Uh, we meet Taryn, who's played by Jennifer Rubin. She's kind of the tough girl. Her issue is that she has struggled with addiction, uh, drug addiction in the past. Jennifer, who is the wannabe... TV star, played by Penelope Sudro, and uh, she has been self-harming. She's been burning herself with cigarettes. Now, we find out later that she's been doing that to keep herself awake, but um, of course they're keeping an eye on her because of that. Philip, I don't really know what his issue is. Sleepwalking. um, Sleepwalking. Sleepwalking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the kid from Stand By Me, uh, Bradley Gregg. Kincaid is this tough black kid. He's just an angry black guy. I guess he, he's just that's an angry why he's black in guy.
0: the institution. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: I read that he didn't even want to audition for this movie, but his agent talked him into it, and he had to sh- he had to like go through the rain and bad weather to get there. And then when he got there, they kept him waiting for hours. And finally, when they. When he got into audition, the director was like, "Just do whatever you want to do." And he <laughs> said, "The director, fuck you!" And then started throwing stuff around the room. <laughs> and the guy was like, "You're hired." <laughs> <laughs> then there's Joey, played by Rodney Eastman, and he uh, apparently had been an orator in high school, a debater, but um, now he's mute. Uh, And the implication is that he's been so terrorized by Freddie that he's now mute. Um, And we meet Dr. Neil Gordon, the young, attractive male psychiatrist, played Mm -hmm. by Craig Wasson. And then the uptight, grumpy, older doctor, Dr. Elizabeth Sims, uh, played by character actress Priscilla Pointer, who's very recognizable. They bring Kristen in, and she's freaking out because they want to sedate her and she even grabs a a scalpel and cuts one of the orderlies and the only person who is able to calm her down steps into the room and that is Nancy (laughs) Uh, once again played by Heather Langenkamp um, who calms her down by making it evident that she knows what she's talking about. And then it just it goes on from there. It's the story of these kids and them trying to deal with their issues and nobody believing them, just as is always the case in yeah. uh, these movies. Um, except in this one, they have an ally in Nancy who knows what they're going through because she's been through it. Um, and she's there to help. I just love that Heather Langenkamp is given kind of this hero arc yeah. in this story. Because she was tough in the first one she, you know she was presented as this you know of course the virginal sweet you know, final girl, but ultimately she was the only one tough enough to stand up to him and now she's back and she is a worthy adversary and i just love it.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is where i think it's this whole sequence where the movie shows its age just a little bit. There's some kind of dated writing in here. It's it's very cliché now in the way that we meet all the characters where the doctor yeah. is going from room to room and there's a different excuse for him to pop in on each of the patients. But when he does or when he when Nancy is, you know, looking around to them, he pops into the rooms. and we instantly get to see what their issue is, because they have some witty quip, or they have something they're saying, like, yeah, they say I'm a sleepwalker, you know, that kind of thing. And then I thought that um, at at this point where they have uh, Kristen cornered in the room, and she just starts reciting the the Nursery nursery rhyme, and then we hear somebody finish reciting the nursery rhyme and we turn around and it's Nancy in the doorway and the music swells and stuff.
1: Seven, eight, better stay up late, nine, ten, never, never, never sleep again.
0: I know that you know probably seeing this in the theater when it first came out. This is probably a big moment for everybody. Like, oh wow, we're yeah. getting to see Nancy come back. But at this point in this movie, it it all comes across as as pretty overly dramatic, I think, and and sure, and a little too um, Hollywood. I don't know, you know. I think also it shows a little bit of its low budget nature that it's got sort of this big budget mindset, but the reality of it is that the, the acting is not always quite so good and the cinematography is not quite so grand and even the score is a little disappointing at times. And so it all just seemed to fall just a little short of what I remembered, you know, in watching it this, this time around. It is yeah. what it is, you know, it's an old movie, that's fine. Right. It's just not as polished uh, as one would, would hope it could be, you know, for this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. But that's fine. Nancy and the doctor, they end up talking and and chatting, and she's real coy about things. She's not ready to jump in and talk, wisely so. Not ready to talk, jump in, and... um you know, tell Neil, oh, yeah, well, this is because they're all having this problem because, you know, there's a crazy guy attacking them in their dreams, right? Um, right. But she does have this hypnosil on her, which he notices mm-hmm. after she drops her purse and he picks it up. Again, you know, one of these hilarious little tropes, but in any way. Right. Uh, yeah, that introduces hypnosil, which factors in later as well yep. in, in later episodes. And so she's taking this to suppress dreams. And he later goes back and looks it up on his computer, which I thought was funny, too. He didn't pull a book off the shelf. He Pulled up his computer in the pre-internet age. He must have had like the encyclopedia on a floppy on, disk. On a I floppy disk. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what was that? You know, I was a little shocked at that part. <laughs> like but. one of those big, like six by six floppies. <laughs> <and shit. laughs> <laughs> this guy, uh, I thought the same thing. He must get floppy updates in the mail so that he can stay in tune <laughs> with all the latest experimental drugs. But anyway, yeah, so that's that. But then um but then Kristen has another dream and this is quite an interesting dream where she's back in the house. And once again, you can really see the money that went into this as far as you know, practical effects. There's a point at which she goes into a room and the whole room starts basically falling apart on her. And then what bursts through the wall, but this giant... Penis. Freddy snake yeah it's pretty phallic and uh, i guess i read it's you probably did too that originally this was even more phallic looking than it looks in the movie they had to darken up freddy's pinkish hue a little bit by throwing yeah. green goo all over him so you get this big slimy freddy snake that starts uh eating her much in the same way i think as i don't know which came out first but remember was it poltergeist 2 when the, uh, the worm in the tequila also gets big like this and starts yeah. to swallow somebody whole. Yeah, I, I don't remember know. that. It's very reminiscent
1: of that. I have to say that I found this scene to be very ambitious. And oh, my gosh. I, and yes. I thought that it looked great. I mean, I thought that really, even by today's standards, it looked
0: incredible. pretty darn good. Well, especially when you know when she gets, uh, well, she pulls Nancy into the dream, and that turns out to be her dream power. She can pull other people in, right? And so Nancy pops into the dream through like a broken mirror, and she grabs a piece of the mirror and stabs the snake, which drops her, and then you know it's back up, and this head which is, looks just like Freddy in a really gross giant way uh, looks at them both and says a few words, and it, you know you know this is uh, like a puppet. And it's really convincing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just l- loads of articulation on it. It's dripping green slime. It looks at them. It's floating there. And he's like, oh, you again, or something like that. And yeah. Then disappears. So it just looks at her and says,
1: you. And then she kind of freaks out. And I love that. God, it's just, mom- you know, when you're invested in particularly like a series like this and you have that moment where these two iconic characters from the first movie come face to face and Freddy sees her and just says you <laughs> yeah. it's cool And then they run away like i can only imagine being in the theater opening weekend of this movie and that happening i can just only imagine the reaction of the crowd like it's so exciting
0: to see these two come back face to face yeah it was really good really good we get two more kills uh coming up and this is again something i didn't remember i kind of remembered that All these characters sort of band together, but a couple of them die pretty early on. Yeah, One of them, uh, Philip, who makes these marionettes in his room, this is one it's hard to forget because as he falls asleep, Freddy in his dream slashes basically down each of his arms and down his legs to his foot, these long slashes, and then it's like he like he pulls the veins or the tendons or something out mm-hmm. and uses them to control him like a marionette walking down. Yeah. And that's that's pretty disgusting and and inventive. It is. And because and because they know
1: that he sleepwalks, they don't immediately intervene. Yeah. But be, but before before that happens, I mean it's a little tiny thing, but I just thought it was so cool like you see Philip sleeping there and then it pans to his marionettes and one of them that is very vague in form transforms into Freddie and it's all done through stop motion, like mm. claymation and it's not like the most amazing stop-motion I've ever seen, but it's kind of cool. And just the fact that it was pre-CGI and they were doing all of this practically, and, you know, I read that they they started with, really, the Freddy marionette, and then they just kind of kept making it more and more vague, and then they reversed the film. They played it backwards so that it appeared that he was becoming more like Freddy over the course of just maybe, I don't know, two or three seconds but I, it was so neat. Yeah. You know, the the kills in this movie, I just think, are really creative. He yeah. marionettes the guy out through the halls. Like, you know,
0: some people see him, some people don't, through a chained and locked door. Yeah. Um, How does that work, though? This There were a couple questions I had about this movie, and that was one of them. Yeah. Like, in the yeah, real world. I don't know. Yeah, it, it seems to break rules just a little bit. Like, Freddy... Freddie can manipulate them in their dreams and it has an effect on the real world. But, but man, it's like it just, he just disappears through a locked door in the real world. Right. Um, and that part I didn't quite get.
1: No. Yeah. They play it fast and loose with the rules, but that's not really uncharacteristic Atypical of the series thing. as a whole. And then he ends up uh, on the top of this big tower and uh, all of the other patients, See him and are screaming at him through a window. And then you see, you know, like enormous Freddy, like looming over this tower, marionetting this kid. And he just uses his blade to slice the tendon strings and the kid falls and, of course, the doctors say that he committed suicide or it was a sleepwalking accident and they won't believe the kids. And, and that's just kind of par for the course throughout the next few things. The next death, I think, is Jennifer. Is that right? The one who wants to yep. be the actress? hmm And this is one of the most iconic deaths in the series, period. Yeah. Um, she wants to be an actress. And so she's up late watching late-night TV and Lawrence Fishburne, Max, I guess is his name. I don't care. Lawrence Fishburne <laughs> it, like, comes in and tells her she needs to go to bed. But she's like, oh, come on. Just let me stay up just a little bit. And so she's watching late night TV by herself in the lounge. And she flips to the Dick Cavett show. The, was the Dick Cavett show on in our day? I don't, I don't remember it
0: at all. I don't remember it either. I remember Johnny Carson. I don't remember yeah. Dick Cavett, but I guess he was. He must have been.
1: Yeah, he was a real late night T V host and they got him for this movie. They originally um casted a different actress to be his guest on this very brief segment, but uh I guess kind of last minute they asked him, who would you like to have as the guest? And he said, I'd like to have Zsa, Zsa Gabor because she's the dumbest person I've ever met in my life, and if I ever wanted
0: to see somebody killed by Freddie, it would be her. <laughs> <laughs> I w- <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's something they didn't quite tell her when they cast. <laughs> oh, her I'm sure, movie. I'm sure, right?
1: <laughs> and I don't know if he actually said it, but that's what All I right. read, so I'm going with it. So, but it's this funny scene where Dick Cavett is uh, interviewing Jaja Gabor. You study, you study, you study, work, and then maybe you can make it.
0: Can I ask you something?
1: Certainly. Who gave that fuck what you think? and stabs her and then the tv goes out like the station goes out and jennifer gets up and walks up towards the tv and freddie like sprouts out of the tv like his arms come out of the sides of it and his head comes out of the top with the antennas coming out of his head and he grabs her and picks her up and says, This is it, Jennifer. You're big, bright, and TV. Fuck the front, time, bitch. And he <laughs> smashes her head into the screen, and she gets electrocuted. And it's one of the most iconic moments, one of the most iconic and most quoted lines from the whole thing. And I guess that the first part of the line was what was scripted. And they filmed it several times, and Robert England delivered the line as written, but then they wanted a different angle, and so they set up the camera at a different angle, and he said the Welcome to Prime Time" line, and the director liked it so much that he spliced the two lines together, and that's what we get. And it's, uh, like, I, like I said three or four times in the last minute, one of the most iconic lines uh, in the whole franchise. And I just... Uh this it's uh, this movie I mean if if you're going to talk about this franchise you can't not talk about this movie it's one of the best yeah. ones
0: It's true and it is it, it's and, and it's memorable So one of the things though about this that I think is hilarious is I can't remember who it is uh, who finally discovers her I think maybe it's Larry Fishburne or whatever, or one of the doctors. But, you know, they open the door and they yeah. look in and there she is hanging out of the TV set. Her head is inside the TV set. Her legs are off the floor and the TV is all smoking. And then her death is also ruled a suicide, just like the guy who fell off the roof.
1: Right. <laughs> like she jumped up there. <laughs> Put,
0: shoved her head through the screen. Like, how does that even work? <laughs>
1: Meanwhile, there's this subplot where um, the doctor, Neil – I think this is the first time that it happens, but it keeps happening. When he's at Jennifer's funeral, he sees this nun. And he goes up and talks to her, and she tells him that the only way to banish the evil spirit is to bury his remains, or, or something along those lines. Um, and initially, he's very confused by it, but he ends up bumping into her several more times. And as it turns out, even though the Elm Street parents killed Freddie, uh, he was never given a proper burial, and that's why he can still do all this stuff, and he needs to be buried in sacred ground or or something but as it turns out this nun is actually Freddie's mother who was the one who was raped she was left she was a volunteer at the hospital she was accidentally left in this ward for the criminally insane she was there for several days she was raped hundreds of times and when they finally got her out she was almost dead um, but alive and pregnant and that mythology is introduced here and then is carried through uh, the rest of the series so this is where we get the son of a hundred maniacs a
0: whole storyline and that's kind of interesting you know like from the first movie, we get ch- Freddie's a child murderer. At some point, it's implied also maybe a child molester as well, yeah. you know, depending on how dark they want to make it. But then it's not just that this is a bad guy, but it's like he was born from, you know, badness or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like he was kind of destined to also be this bad guy. So they didn't have to do that, you know, because Freddie, th- at least the conceit is that Freddy comes back because he's taking revenge uh, upon the parents, who took the vigilante justice You know who right. Took everything into their own hand And went and burned him So that already has its Makes its own sense But then when you You add this additional layer Of his mother being raped By a hundred maniacs It's like geez, How much more terrible Can they make this guy This guy's backstory
1: Yeah Well they And they continue to build on it Almost to a ridiculous point Like in I don't know Six One of the worst ones Freddy's dead They introduce the this whole thing about how when he was being burned by the parents, he was approached by these nightmare demons, and they're the ones that helped him come back. And it gets more complex, but at least they were, you know, trying giving us a little bit more different. backstory here. Her child, Freddie, the bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Nancy finally basically convinces Dr. Neil that she knows what's going on, and she tells him the truth, and they all have this group session where she tells them, you're not crazy, you know, I've been through it too, he's really this guy, he was a child killer, and now he's back in dreams, and um, she's like, but Kristen is awesome, and she can bring us into her dreams, and all of you are special, and you have these special powers, so... Let's go under group hypnosis and we can all be together and we can figure out what to do. So, Neil hypnotizes all of them, but at first they don't realize they're hypnotized. So, Joey goes off like he gets, uh, he's been crushing on this hot nurse who looks like she stepped right out of a porno. Yeah. <laughs> she draws him away. And then the rest of them are just kind of talking. And then weird things start to happen. Like um, the doctor is playing with like those clicky kinetic. Balls that, like, you plop one and then the other one's got... Whatever. Um, And they all start flying around uh, the room, and so they realize that they are in the dream, and so they all start revealing their powers. And it turns out that Taryn is, like, this badass, mohawk-wielding, you know, kick-butt girl. Um, And the wheelchair kid, Will... Uh, can walk and he's a wizard because he's like a Dungeons and Dragons nerd, so he can do like wizardy stuff. Kincaid is super uh, strong, um, and Kristen can do gymnastics. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's a great superpower. Well, that on top of being able to pull other people into her dreams. So she gets like a double power there, I guess. That's true.
1: So they're all having fun, uh, like playing with their powers or whatever. Meanwhile, Joey is being uh, seduced by this nurse. And she tells him she likes him or whatever. And then she immediately takes off all her clothes. She's completely topless. She's got these huge boobs. I mean, this this lady had to have been a model or or something. I mean, she's gorgeous. You know, I didn't read this on our usual sources, you know, our (laughs) in-depth research, but I read that initially they had shot it so that when it is revealed, the way that it's revealed that it's Freddie now, is she's on top of him and they're making out, and she starts like biting and pulling out his tongue, and she eventually shoots tongues out of her mouth and they tie him to the bed. Initially, there was going to be a sequence where from like the neck down it was going to be this actress fully topless with her boobs out and from the neck up it was going to be Freddy's head
0: oh my um, god
1: and they just decided that it was too weird and gross but if you look if you google it you can find the images cuz they shot it i've never seen any video but you can find the stills oh man and it is creepy and gross <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> to see Freddy's head on this you know big boobied lady you know, it's so funny to read stuff like this and there's a lot of stuff like this about this movie it, it's almost charming and quaint where they hold yeah. themselves back like uh, this is gonna be a little too bloody oh this is gonna be just a little too gross because you just can't imagine anybody in the horror genre today making those kind of judgments <laughs> right, right. If, if anything it's like oh yeah that's gonna be really great uh, we gotta up the gore here, you know, <laughs> right?
1: Oh yeah, I love reading this behind the scenes stuff. And like I said, there's so much, you know. And and there was there was a whole big documentary about the whole series. Um, oh yeah, was it called Never Sleep Again? Is That's that what right? It
0: was called? Yeah, on the DVDs, and it's it's very good.
1: It is very good, but it's long. It's like three or four hours long. But they go into great detail um, on every single one of uh, the sequels. And there's some really good stuff there. If you're a fan of the franchise, I really recommend watching that documentary because there's really cool behind-the-scenes stuff in there. But at this point, it kind of becomes a rescue mission to get uh, Joey. When they all wake up out of the hypnosis, Joey doesn't wake up and he's in a coma. So Nancy and Neil get fired um, and they Mm kind of go off on their own. And Neil tells Nancy about how Freddie's remains need to be buried in consecrated ground. And she says, well, there's only one man who knows where they are. And so they go visit her dad. Um, which is John Saxon reprising his role from the first movie. And at first he won't tell them. He, he's just like, you know, I'm done with it. I've already lost too much to this. I'm, I'm not going back. So he won't tell Nancy. So Neil tells Nancy, you go back to the hospital, because they get a call um, that uh, Kristen has been sedated and put in the quiet room. And so the other kids are freaking out. They know she's in trouble. So Neil says, Nancy, you go back and deal with that, and I'll deal with your dad. And at that point, their storylines kind of diverge. Neil takes Nancy's dad to the... First, he goes to a church where he gets some holy water and a cross.
0: <laughs> and Yeah, this whole bit, I'm, it's just hilarious. Uh, it, again, another part where the movie gets just a little silly. I, I think the whole sequence with her dad in the bar is, once again, it's so cliché and it's so over dramatic the just almost every bit of it, even even John Saxon's acting in this is kind of uh yeah you know I, it is again it is what it is, but it's really really goofy then he goes to that church and he gets the holy water and it's kind of clever like he, John Saxon's is drunk at this point and he dump he takes his his uh, bottle out of his hand and dumps it out and then when he goes into the church that's what he uses to fill up with the holy water but then there's yeah. this there's this quick little scene where he goes and he takes a crucifix off of like the wall in the church and this priest stops him and says well he doesn't really stop him because he's on the other side of this this you know dividing great thing yeah and he says what are you doing uh, and he says oh uh uh well i i really need it i'll pay for it and he breaks out his wallet and then end scene and it's like, yeah. what in the world was the point of that little bit? <laughs> like, No idea. Except I think that the... I, I saw in the end credits that uh, the guy who played the priest is related to Bob Shea in some way. He, his last oh. <laughs> name is Shay, So he had... It was like, did they really want to squeeze a little cameo in here for this guy? To That's have this funny. dumb little pointless scene? And then, of course, you know, they go out to the junkyard. And so what is the implication here? is Nancy's dad. He was a sheriff or a police officer in the first movie, right? Yes. And he still has his little sheriff's badge, right? Yeah, he's but, still in uniform. But his uniform, on his patches on the shoulders say security. Oh, I don't know. So maybe he's been demoted or something. But he's still wearing his sheriff's badge? I don't know, because cause then they drive up to this uh, junkyard, which you know he knows because he was part of... I guess, was he part of the parents who off, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he knows where they left him, and it turns out it's, it's in the trunk of a car in this junkyard. But they pull up to the junkyard, he gets out of his car, and he goes up and he unlocks the gate to the junkyard. And I, and I was like, does this guy just have keys to everything? Or is he security at the junkyard now? I, I couldn't quite get that
1: yeah I don't know. I didn't even notice the whole security thing. I just assumed that he was in the same position he was before, but it yeah. would make more sense that he wasn't. I mean he's clearly you know a drunk now and not dealing well with the events of the previous movies so um I'm yeah. not sure uh there are a few inconsistencies you know, okay, so they're there in the graveyard and they find the remains or whatever and um Neil starts digging a hole. Meanwhile, back at Weston Hills the remaining ones all hypnotize themselves again and go back and find Nance or excuse me, find Kristen in the quiet room, um, which is a padded room. And Nancy keeps saying, it's so important. We stay together. It's so important. We stay together. But as soon as they're in there, Freddie starts like, sh- well, like from the outside, like he doesn't appear, but like from the outside, you see his blades shredding the walls. And so they're all encased in these swirling feathers and they get, Split up. This is the part that we were talking about earlier where it gets a little bit disappointing because Taryn faces Freddy first, and she faces him. I mean, she looks, it's so 80s and ridiculous, mm, but I but it's love awesome. it. I'm, yeah, she's yeah. got this huge mohawk and, like, the fingerless gloves and a leather jacket, and that's how we envisioned badasses in the 80s, I guess. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Now we just laugh at that.
1: Right. And she's in this back alley, and she faces off with Freddy, and they barely get a chance to even fight at all before he says, let's not fight. We used to be friends. And he lifts up his hands, and both of them, his fingers are syringes. And he takes the syringes, and he... Jects them into her arms and, you know, there are cool practical effects with her veins bulging out and her face getting, you know, distorted. And I read that her head was supposed to explode, but they just couldn't get it to look right. So she just dies. And like literally the whole scene is maybe two minutes, maybe yeah. three minutes. Um and it's unfortunate. I would have liked to have seen her to have the opportunity to kick his ass for a little while. I mean I yeah. figured she was gonna die, but it would have been nice to see her get to have a little bit of fun yeah but she doesn't and then almost immediately then it cuts to will freddie first threatens him with this big scary wheelchair and like he's in this big hallway and the wheelchair that has like you know spinning spiky wheels and blades and things it starts approaching him and he kind of dodges it the first time but his legs get cut so he's on the ground um and Freddy taunts him but then he's like no I am the dream wizard and he stands up and he shoots like lightning out of his hands and like it stuns Freddy for a second but then Will just like starts running at him like I am the dream wizard
0: and Freddy just <laughs> grabs
1: him and lifts him up in the air and kills him and that's it yeah. like again like 2 minutes max
0: yeah and it
1: just it it felt it was it was a letdown You know, especially since we're building up into the last 20, 30 minutes of the movie, give me some showdown.
0: And maybe, you know, they were just trying to up the kills. Maybe they were, again, like I said earlier, trying to show how useless uh, these powers can be against the guy who ultimately has control of the dreams. And so you're supposed to just feel that much more intense going to the last bit of it but i feel like you do and it's funny because i remember these kills very vividly uh they were pretty iconic especially the Terrence, you know situation with the needles and the drugs and whatnot but at the end of the day in the context of the movie it's it's pretty sad yeah no i was with you on that and that was a bit of a shocker for me too the others end up kind of finding one each one another i think they more or less assemble back in the house and a uh a giant door appears in front of them just floating and suspended in the air uh-huh. nancy's line is look a door <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> Sometimes the writing in this movie isn't the best, but uh, in any case, yeah, they go through the door, and where they end up in is a huge spiral staircase that goes down to the pits of hell, uh, the boiler in its, room, yeah. yeah, the boiler room basically, which is where a lot of you know this movie and en- these movies end up. And uh, sure enough, Joey, who I'd almost forgotten about by this point, isn't dead yet. He's still suspended by these tongues over a flaming fire pit down in the bottom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh they barge in and as freddie slowly starts to release the tongues from joey uh they're able to get to him in time to i think as nancy gra- somebody grabs him yeah and then the others and this is the closest thing we really get to a bit of a battle Uh, between them with them using their powers, right? Because you get the strength of, uh, Kincaid who is able to help ultimately pull Joey up. Uh, you have the acrobatics of of Kristen who uh, is able to, uh, occupy Freddie for a little while. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Even that is cut short because meanwhile in the graveyard, um, Neil is burying the remains and, it appears that somehow Freddy is alerted to this fact, and so he disappears out of the fight. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and then, again, totally messing with the rules, somehow Freddy re-embodies his skeleton, and <laughs> the skeleton fights... Well, first of all, it kills John Saxon's character, um, and then it fights Neil and throws him into the pit, um, which, again, you know... What? Like, <laughs> how is Freddy doing this? But okay. And it, you know, it gives you a fun little kind of evil dead stop motion skeleton moment.
0: I was thinking Jason and the Argonauts myself. Yeah, well, very
1: similar. But You know, I was reading about goofs and continuity and stuff. The Freddy skeleton is wearing his glove, which doesn't make any sense because they took the glove. Remember, the the mom had it in their furnace in the first movie, and it showed up in the second movie, too.
0: I didn't even notice he was wearing the glove because he's not slashing at him. He's got like a big pipe or something. He's fighting him. Yeah. Or no, he's yeah. fighting him with the... The, the shovel, maybe.
1: Once Freddy has Neil taken care of, he then returns and he starts taunting them again, and the kids end up, well, the kids and Nancy end up in this hall of mirrors. And I don't mean like a funhouse hall of mirrors, just like a long hall with lots with of, like, of mirrors. framed mirrors. <laughs> right. So Freddy appears in all of these mirrors and starts pulling them in. And I thought that it just looked pretty good, but I read that they had so much trouble with this, because it was pre-CGI, so really what they were doing was just working with reflective mylar. And knowing that, it looks pretty damn good. <laughs> Especially impressive, yeah. It really is. But Joey finds his dream strength, which is that he can talk, and so he screams, and the mirrors all uh, shatter. And then that's what leads up. I Well, then this is a part of the movie, this is probably the part of the movie that bothers me the most. Joey screams, they all embrace, and Nancy says, It's over! He's gone! <laughs> Like, really? (laughs) Do you you really think it's going to be that easy? (laughs) Um, So then her dad shows up in like this angelic light, and he's like, "Uh, I've crossed over, but I couldn't leave without saying goodbye to you. And so she goes and she embraces him, but it's not him, it's Freddy, who then knives her in the abdomen. And then Freddy goes after... Kristen, but nancy jumps up from behind him grabs his glove and impales him meanwhile in the graveyard uh neil it has woken up has thrown freddie's remains in the grave and throws the holy water on them which apparently has the effect that it's supposed to because freddie starts to kind of dissipate and disintegrate into this light and he disappears and he's gone Kristen grabs Nancy and is holding her and is crying. I won't let you die. I won't let you. I'm going to dream you into a beautiful dream. Forever and ever. Then they wake up and everything's fine. And the last scene that we get is Neil sleeping. And apparently he has Kristen's model of the house. And the light turns on. Now, my indication was that that meant that Freddy was still around. Yeah. What I read was that this was supposed to be the last movie. I feel like they said that with pretty much every movie after the first one. <laughs> um, but this was supposed to be the last one and they deleted a scene where somebody was talking to Kristen after the final events and they asked her do you ever dream about Nancy and she said I see her every night. And the implication was that Nancy was now like her dream guardian. And so when you saw Neil and you saw the light go on in the house, it wasn't supposed to be implied that that was Freddy that was still around, but rather that it was Nancy and that now that she was the guardian of the dream warriors.
0: Right. Because the light shines on that little statue of the... High dream guardian or whatever that that they've got on there. Right, I, I can kind of see that symbolism now that you mention it. But you're right. My interpretation, probably everybody else's, in yeah. seeing this movie without that scene is that Ah, oh, Freddy's not gone. Right. So yeah, it's a little silly. It the the ending gets a little silly. I know they're going for big and they're going for complicated in here. But this notion, like you said, that Freddy can reassemble his skeleton uh, and do this battle at the Beginning of the world, and then end it by tossing two scoopfuls of dirt on this guy, and thinking he's finished the job, and then dropping apart and coming back in to finish off the rest of the kids. He was just setting himself up for disappointment later, you know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all it takes in the next movie is for a dog to pee fire on his grave, and he comes back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a true. Part 4 does pick up exactly where Part 3 left off. They recast um, Patricia Arquette. There are... Various stories Some people say that she turned it down Because apparently she did not have a good time Making mm. this movie um, The budgetary and time constraints Made it really stressful work environment And it was, pretty, it was her first movie It was particularly hard on her Her first day of shooting They were running so late That she didn't even start filming until 4 in the morning And by that time she had forgotten her lines And so they ended up having to do Like 40 some takes Before they eventually just made up cue cards and let her read them from behind the camera Um, and so she didn't have a good time so by some accounts she was offered it and decided not to come back by other accounts she had already been offered other things and her career was taking off so she didn't come back By other accounts, they didn't even bother to offer it to her because her career was taking off and they didn't think they could get her back. But one way or another, she didn't come back. Tuesday night took over her role, um, and Tuesday night ended up getting killed in the first 15 minutes of the the movie. But Joey returned, uh, Kincaid returned, um, and then it took uh, a a new course with new characters, including Alice, who was the heroine of the next two movies. Mm -hmm. I'm still... A fan of the movie. Uh, again, it's not aging particularly well, but I just think that there's so much good stuff going on in it that I can still appreciate it for what it is and and for how I remember it. And I I, I still think it's a good time.
0: It's a real spectacle, you know, and that and that is it's not disappointing in that way. And like you said before some of the most iconic kills of the of the franchise and because they're creative and that, that's why I really enjoyed the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise even more so than like Friday the 13th and these oh, others sure. because they, well they have the ability at least to be creative, super creative with the kills because we're talking about the dream world and so they take full advantage of that at every turn and that's what's really fun I think about watching the series even though they get silly, even yeah. though the Freddy character you know kind of changes and even at the times when it seems to play fast and loose with the rules you can still watch it for these creative kills and the cool special effects that go into it and that's that's really i think the core maybe one of the core um besides the freddy character himself draws of the whole franchise it's this movie like you said, that really cements things. It kind of resets the base for them to launch uh, the rest of the franchise in, and uh, and it make a little bit more sense after number two kind of knocks it off the rails a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's the good part of the movie. And then there's some silly things about this movie that's just chalk it up to low budget, chalk it up to bad acting, chalk it up to not the best writing in the world. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that I think that this is... This was intended, at least, to be the last film in the in the franchise. It makes some of the choices have a little more sense, like that Nancy is killed, that her father mm-hmm. is killed, and also uh, this nun thing showing up. It's like they had to shoehorn in an ex like a final explanation of Freddy. yeah, but. Ultimately, having this mis- this nun mysteriously appearing in this movie as kind of a ghost or whatever isn't doesn't really fit. It feels a little out of place unless it were again the last in the series in which that would make a lot more sense and wouldn't seem right. so weird. so I-, I enjoyed it. I like I said, a little disappointed because I remembered it a little bit better than uh, it ended up being but me too, at the end of the day, compared to the rest of them, um, yeah. one of the better in the franchise for sure they're not yeah. all fantastic movies we can't pretend no, it's citizen no. kane you know <laughs> no I, I i still thought four was
1: fun four was directed by rennie harlan and i uh really enjoyed that one five uh i don't know it was kind of pushing it for me six i hated it six just went full <laughs> on goofball yeah. um and i hated it but then they came back with new nightmare which i freaking loved yeah. and still do and even freddy versus jason we really liked that one yeah it was fun it was fun you know, i doubt that we'll ever get to see uh robert england as freddy again now i say that but he did just reprise the role on american sitcom uh the goldbergs this halloween oh after really saying that he would absolutely never do it again yeah because he he hates the makeup pro- process and i think he's 70 or nearing 70 oh my god he said um, he would never do it again. He hates the makeup process, but he just, this Halloween, reprised the role in full makeup. Now, granted, he was only in the show for less than five minutes, but he it, it was him. And since, you know, in talking about that and doing publicity for that, he's kind of said, well... Never say never. So you never mm. know, but the guy is getting old.
0: Maybe we're going to see some Indiana Jones, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull kind of reboot where uh, Freddie is an old aging guy who's got to pass the torch to some other child murderer who visits kids in their dreams. Yeah,
1: maybe. <laughs> I, I tell you what, if, if they got him back in the makeup for one more sequel, I would be there opening weekend, oh, you for bet sure. your ass. <laughs> I, I I couldn't keep myself away. But anyway, we're left with a legacy. I'm left with my box set of the entire series that I treasure, and uh, they're fun to go back to. And I'm glad that we return to uh, this series for our 150th. Maybe uh, if we get around to 300, we'll uh, check out part four or something. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. You never know. (laughs) But but we but not the abomination that is the remake. I just refuse. I can't I can't watch that again.
0: I I never even saw it myself. I don't. It's terrible. (laughs) Well, thank you all for sticking with us for 150 episodes. Um, especially those of you who've been with us from the very beginning. If you haven't been with us from the very beginning, you can catch all 149. They're up. They're up on our website, twoguys.redfortynet.com 40 netcom They're also up on iTunes and Google Play, wherever podcasts are. You're, we're not going anywhere we're going to be on for the foreseeable future. We've got a lot more planned. And we're coming up into Christmas season now. Yep. So it, we gotta we got to somehow figure out four more holiday-themed movies to do. <laughs> and and uh, I'm sorry to say it's going to start to get pretty trashy. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some ideas. We'll be all right. Okay, good. I can't wait to hear them. Uh, Until next time, I'm Todd, and I'm Craig, with Two Guys and a Chainsaw.